0: In Episode 23, we met Ronan Donnelly, Vice President of Everything as a Service at SimCorp. SimCorp is a fintech company founded in 1971 that is currently transforming their business model. And in this episode, we meet Oliver Johnson, the Chief Commercial Officer at SimCorp. And we will be discussing the impact of as-a-service transformation on the go-to-market capabilities of a company. I am Thomas Law, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association, And welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. Before we dive in today, I'd like to share how TSIA can support technology companies in this current economic environment. I know that executive teams are navigating uncertainty. I also know that improving overall profitability has become a cornerstone of company initiatives. We hear it all the time on this podcast. So I am making a unique and time-limited offer. I will personally meet with any executive team to discuss the proven practices we see drive both profitability and growth. To learn more and take advantage of this time-limited offer, simply click on the email link in the show notes. So let's get this insight engine humming. Oliver, welcome to Tectonic. And I want to thank you for being a founding member, and advisory board member for TSI's CRO Council. And my intuition is that the role of chief commercial officer is, is probably very similar to the role of CRO, but, but fill us in. What, what are your responsibilities at SimCorp?
1: Sure. Maybe firstly, Thomas, thank you so much for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, in regards to the CCO role or chief commercial officer, you're right. Um, at SimCorp, my responsibility is it's both the corporate commercial functions, such as marketing, go-to-market some revenue operations and commercial data insights. But it's also working really closely with our regional sales and our customer success teams. So in essence, it's pretty much everything commercial at core.
0: So a big, to say the least, a big job. And again, it sounds very much like a a classic CRO. And and so I'm curious, at a high level, from your perspective, what is different about being a sales leader today as opposed to, say, just like five years ago?
1: Yeah, I think uh, there's a number of differences. Um, Firstly, I think more and more of the the customer buying journey is getting done online. Uh, I think we've seen this trend for some time, um, especially in B2C, but SimCorp is a really focused B2B company. And I think now when we do complex enterprise B2B sales, I think many of those core buying jobs are being done online. Um, And that means I think that sales leaders need to invest a lot more in digital capabilities. Um, but also data and insights. And I think we touch a little bit more on that later. I think another change for me um, in how we're selling five years ago, the focus from our customers was very much on features and functions of our offers. Mm -hmm. Whereas today I think customers are less interested in that and they're really honing in on the outcomes um, and they care less about the functionality. And that's not to say that functions are not important, but I think the conversation has moved to be much more, around what business outcome are we driving? um, What's the solution doing? Um, So much so that we've even started tying business outcomes into our pricing model, which then obviously goes down pretty well with the customer because you're aligning the customer and the vendor um, to the same ultimate goal. I think lastly, sales leaders are are more and more conscious of cost. Um, I think sales used to be all about hitting a number, um, whereas now we also have a lot of KPIs around customer acquisition cost, Revenue acquisition cost, I think, as you call it, um, but these are making it onto all our sort of sales leader um, scorecards now.
0: Well, you put a lot on the table there, and I'm going to go back to the, the very first one around B2B becoming more digital because this is something that you know we we believe strongly in, and we think a lot of B2B companies are in a d- denial over that. And what's really interesting is. You know, you're a, a fintech company. And so you're saying even in the world of financial services, which is, is known as being a sort of a conservative industry, you're seeing that your customers lean into more digital type of transactions.
1: Uh, less so the actual transaction. Um, and we've done a lot of exploratory work around this. And again, we're selling quite complex solutions that typically require the board uh, approval at our customers. So it's not something that I ever think we're going to move into a digital transaction. But it's more as we look at the different phases of the buying journey, by the time they're ready to have a conversation with us, they've already done a lot of their own research, a lot of their own investigation. Um, And and it's that area that I think five years ago, we were sort of scratching the surface. But now it's really everybody is coming to us by the time we have the conversation they're they're almost fully qualified, whether we're in or out.
0: So it's a much more if I play that back it's a much more I'll call it a digital sales cycle where the customer is educating, they're learning, they they like to do that on their own. They like to have digital, you know, assets to be able to do that. So, you know, so the old days where the salesperson had to go in, do the dog and pony show, do the demo, spoon-feed the customer all the information that, you know, that's not the requirement. It's more they're they're educated on what your capabilities are and now you're getting into the short strokes of okay, how are we going to land this year? And that leads me to the other question I had around, you know, outcomes. And it, it, as you know, I mean, we've been you know talking about outcome engineering, outcome based selling for, for many years, and we also know that there's this huge gap that exists. So if I go to most you know technology companies or websites, they'll talk about impacting business outcomes. That's the story. Everybody wants to hang their hat on that. Um, But then when you get down to, okay, how are you actually selling your solutions, right? They go back to feature functionality, right? So just put a little bit more, you know, uh, color around, you know, when you're positioning outcomes with customers, what type of outcomes are you anchoring on ultimately in the solutions?
1: Yeah, so so I agree with your point. And I think we were were in that kind of phase that you just explained uh, for for a few years. Um, And then we went kind of quite consciously went through um, quite a big exercise, but we started on our customer success team. And our whole idea here was if we can measure outcomes and we track outcomes with our customers, we can then use those to better support our sales process. So all of our customer success teams over the last few years, essentially, we sat down with the sort of the main decision makers, C-levels of our customers, and we asked them, you know, what's in their scorecard? How, How are they being measured? For success, not from our, not from what we were selling them, but in their business. And then we took each one of those goals and we tried to translate that down into what can we do with our products that are going to impact those business outcomes. We then measured our whole team on that. So after a couple of years of measuring this every quarter, we are able to get some really sort of really good insights that we're now able to use in our sales uh, process. So I mean, we sell um, sort of front to back systems for the financial um, buy side um, industry, and and one of the big one of our big value propositions is using tech to automate a lot of the value chain. And, and the easiest way to measure that is a, a straight through processing rate. So we, we've started measuring this and we found out that um, obviously one of the outcomes on a lot of our sort of a COO's scorecard was about cost efficiency and things like that. And we've we've then said, OK, how can SimCorp contribute to a cost efficiency? One of the things we can do is we can automate the process that's measured by an SDP rate. So then we measure the STP rates of all the customers, and now if I'm a salesperson going out, I can say that if I'm going to an insurance company, I know that SimCorp, out of all our insurance customers, we've improved STP rates by over 70%. Mm-hmm. And, and that they, these are metrics that we're getting from our existing customers that we're, we're then using back. So, so I think that, for me, when I think about outcomes, that's probably a good example. Um, and I think because we've learned so much and we've measured some of the data, that's made us confident enough in, in some sales situations, we actually tie the pricing mechanism into an improvement in one of these key outcomes. And then, then that that really resonates with the with the customer.
0: Well in you know and what's so different about that from the way that historically we've sold tech solutions, which is we would put a theoretical ROI on the table to a customer, yeah. like, hey, we're going to improve your you know transaction processing, whatever, put the solution in and then move on. <laughs> and so what you're describing is, hey, no, we actually go, we measure, we can validate, we have a, a high degree of confidence that we can deliver that. And that's what unlocks true outcome-based selling is you've got to have the confidence to deliver the outcome. And, you know, at Lisa, this next question I wanted to ask you, because in, in the last book we wrote, Digital Hesitation, you, you know, we d- really strongly believe that the selling motion has to become much more data-driven. And so as a, as a chief commercial officer, what data is most important to you? Obviously, the types of outcome-oriented metrics are, are important. Any other types of data that are really important to you?
1: I, I see that in kind of two brackets, right? Um, the first being a bit more adoption data. And that's what I was just touching on, collecting data from the existing customers. Um, and, and here, you need to keep in mind, that our customers are are large financial institutions, we've got a lot of sort of government sovereign wealth funds that, that actually consider some of their investment data being state secrets, right? So I'm not talking here about looking at their data. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking here about what parts of the product they're using, how they're using it, what outcomes are driving. So we, we capture a lot of that. Um, and then we, we use that obviously for our own insights, but also for the customer to benchmark themselves against their peers. right? Um, and I think the other... The other side of the data that we use quite a lot is more on the intent side. Um, and given what we said earlier about the buying journey, moving online, we have invested in quite a lot of uh, marketing uh, tools where we can actually see for that top of funnel um, segment, where they are, who's touching us, what what kind of interaction we're having and what kind of engagement. We, we do quite a lot around that to try to give more or uh, better data to our, our sales teams that are going to then come and try to... To move those
0: opportunities along, I mean, I believe that salespeople today, any sales organization, I think when they wake up in the morning, their day should be driven by data. <laughs> so, what customers, like say, what are the, who's hitting us? Who seems to be showing more interest? What what are they interested in? Not, you know, sort of what they feel like pursuing or what their guts telling them. I, I think the more data driven their processes, the more, you know, clearly the more efficient that they're going to be. So, but I think that's a journey. I mean, I think that a lot of sales organizations are still not convinced you know, I, I hear a lot when I talk to salespeople, they're like, well, that data stinks. That data, you know, I know that account better. Okay. The data is saying X, but I know that account and it's really Y. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> right? we can't just ignore <laughs> all of this information over here. So it's, it's, it's a cultural journey. And I mean, you're, you're smiling right now because you've, you've been in this game a long time. And so you, you, you know, it, you, you know, it, so you, you actually touched on something um, about state secrets a minute ago. And so, you know, we, we know that Simcore is going through an as-a-service business model transformation, right? You're you're putting more stuff out in the cloud. But we also know that in the financial services industry, they can be kind of persnickety about moving their data to the cloud. They can be very conservative. So, you know, what type of, you know, as-a-service offers are you taking to market?
1: I completely agree with you here. I think anybody who's been through an infosec process with a tier one financial institution will know how complicated it can be. Yeah. But I think actually an anecdote from, from one of the COOs of one of our larger sovereign customers um, who typically these are the segment of our customer base that are the most conservative about putting their data somewhere, somewhere else. Um, her point, and I think it's very valid, was that her firm was going to be much safer on a public cloud where Microsoft are spending billions of dollars on security every year than their own data center where they've got a fraction of that budget, right? So I think I, I think that's really a trend. And I think to use your five years, analogy, I think that's something that has really shifted. If I look across our customer base, there's no longer any customers that are saying, if I go to SaaS, it, it's when and how. Um, but I think so, so obviously, moving to SaaS and changing that operating model is quite interesting. But I think the other angle for us is that I think we're seeing the next evolution of that SaaS play. Um, and for us, that means it's it's no longer just about moving an application from on premise to being in the cloud where all the upgrades are managed and the systems. Um, you know, so the technical things then become as a service, but it's actually about customers now are asking us, OK, that's great, get it in the cloud actually there's parts of your software that I consider a non core to my business. And what do I mean by that? I mean, that I still need them, but in our world, for example, if I'm a, if I'm an asset manager, I use Simcorp's uh, technology to decide and to help me make investment decisions. But then once I've made that investment decision, I also use the technology to help settle the trade, to help do the accounting and the reporting. And, and if I'm that firm, especially an asset manager, that's under all kinds of different pressure these days, they're looking at their operating model. Go. What is going to differentiate me from my competition? It's certainly not the way I settle a trade or I do my accounting. So then, why am I why am I focusing on doing that in house? So, what what our customers are saying to us now is, "Hey, SimCorp, this is great that you've got your platform in the cloud and it can do everything we need. But actually, can you start operating some of that for me? So, so not only give me the tech, but actually give me that as a service. So we've launched sort of data as a service, accounting as a service. So we call it business process as a service where we actually take on some of the operations of the platform. And I think that that we think that trend is going to continue. But one of the interesting dynamics that brings is also how you now prioritize your R&D backlog, because this used to all be about features and functions and, and the prioritization that got done based on where the biggest market opportunity and where your clients are going to be. Now we've also got this operational efficiency angle because We're running our own software ourselves, so potentially we could make a few enhancements to the product that makes it cheaper for us to operate and therefore those services that we're providing actually much more profitable.
0: Well, you know, your comments here are, are super timely because literally right now I'm working on a, a paper with our research team and it's called the CXO Playbook to Profitable SaaS. And it's, it's basically because, as you know, I mean, everybody is just ringing, trying to get, you know, they've got to get the margins better. They've got to get the overall profitability better. And so it's a playbook and it has 12 plays. And the 12th play is, you know, basically exploring and investing in managed offers around SaaS, which is what you just articulated. And George Humphrey and Jeremy, who who do our research in managed services, they'll they'll tell you that is one of the fastest growing revenue streams in all of managed services. And it it is a managed SaaS. and 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 the reasons are the ones you articulated. Customers are saying, look, it's not my core competency to deal with some of these operational administrative activities around the SaaS. Why am I doing that? Would you do that for me? And then it leads to the the other point you put on the table, is as a SaaS provider, you start to really rethink what is super important around that offer and that platform because things like you say, easy to operate, making it you know more efficient becomes your bottom line now more th- you know than than before. So it's really interesting times but i you know i do believe we're going to see many more sas companies find themselves you know with these managed types offers because there's revenue there there's margin there and there's there's clearly market need there
1: and, and i think one of the our beliefs is actually we're quite efficient at operating our own tech because we're, we're the ones that build it right so i think yeah. when we when we look at across our customer base we see diff- different ways of operating it, and i think we've learned from that so Actually, we're in quite a good position to operate our own
0: technology, yeah yeah no, it's 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 a good, the right journey to be on I think there's no doubt about it so so, I am curious to you know again, as you have more of these new as a service offers, you know what is the impact on the sales channel because again, once you get somebody into an as a service posture, you know things like expansion and renewal become really critical so so how is that impacting the you know the way you do your selling in your go to market
1: yeah I- I think there's a there's a couple of things that I think of here. One, I, I think it's quite a different sell, right? So, and, and the way that we've approached that is actually, it's using dedicated sales specialists. Um, and, and I think we bring those into uh, opportunities when the, when we see that opportunity is going to be more going down that road, uh, route rather than rather than the platform. It also, as, as you said, it really, it makes the need to drive adoption even more important. Um, because you can you can give the service, but you, I think you you guys actually have that uh, that quote somewhere about winning the customer every day. I think yeah. in a service in a service mindset that you've really got to be there, um, and, and you're operating under completely different service levels from when you're selling technology. So I think that that service level is, is again it's a, it's a bit of a different game.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think what I is I listen to you there. I mean, the, the service motions becoming. Really, in a sense, the future of the sales <laughs> motion because it is those service motions that is unlocking expansion, it's securing the renewal. It's a very different, you know, m- mentality, and and that leads me to a question around efficacy Sale, and like you said, it, you know, people are really starting to think about the cost of sales. So we track this metric I've, I've mentioned it before on this podcast called rack revenue acquisition cost, and we know that that number is rising in the industry, specifically for SaaS companies? Because if your revenue slow down or, and or your cost of sales and marketing go up, your revenue acquisition costs by definition are going up. So what tactics do you think companies should be pursuing to reduce overall cost of, of growing revenues?
1: I, I think we love rack, right? We've adopted that uh, metric uh, and we think the measure is a really great way for us to drive the right behavior. Mm-hmm. I think we've put a lot of focus on making the sales process more efficient. Um, and and really trying to ensure that our salespeople focus all their time on high-value sales activity. So what have we done there? We've we've actually built out our go-to-market team um, to to try to do all of the positioning uh, and, and sort of product wrapping work so that the sales team can be free not to have to do that, but to think about how they sell a particular opportunity. I think we've also invested quite a lot in some digital tools, um, such as things simple things that help pre-sales teams answering RFPs, some, some automation uh, tools around how we share with potential customers uh, videos um, and demos of the product. Again, that's all about trying to make sure that we're saving time in either preparing sales meetings, doing sales meetings, or, or just giving the customer a better experience. So we're leveraging digital quite heavily there, which I think is ultimately all about making us a bit more scalable.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, again, with the, with the sales organizations, I think one thing is being more data driven as we've already talked. I think the other thing is sort of climbing the value ladder in terms of the activities is what you're talking about, how they're spending their time. You know, are there, are there lower value activities that could be you know basically done a different way they're by a different resource through a digital experience so i'm climbing up and really spending my time you know in this in the strategic conversations and i was just i, f- I finished a, a book it's i think it's called the qualified sales leader that one of our, our sales executives actually recommended to me and there's a great quote in this book and it, and it said you know the problem with a lot of sales folks account executives is that they confuse activity with accomplishment and there's a big difference there, right? So you can be very busy. You can be doing a lot of activities. Oh, I made this call. I did this meeting. I did this. Well, I sent this thing. I did this email. And it's like, oh, okay. But let's look at the, you know, the accomplishment, right? Are you maturing an opportunity? Are you nurturing it effectively? And so I think, you know, for some sales organizations, there's still a little confusion there between, you know, activity and accomplishment. So, um, and I think you have to be focused on accomplishment if you're going to take down rack. And the other comment I'll just make about rack because I'm, I'm in these conversations, you know, almost every other day with leadership teams. I've never seen such a maniacal focus on sales cost in 20 years. Never. I mean, I just, you know, I, I, I just think that because, you know, we were for a long time at this, you know, growth at any cost mentality. We've talked about that before in this podcast, but I think again, with inflation, the cost of money, the reality is, you know, companies are realizing I, yeah, I want to grow, but I have got to do it more cost effectively. And so I don't think this is going away in the short term. And, and so I think companies have to get really super you know serious about RAC for, for sure.
1: I, I totally agree, especially as people go more and more through the SaaS journey, right? Oh, no, absolutely. Your margins, your gross margins are more under pressure.
0: Totally agree. So I'm going to actually go back to, to outcomes since we touched on that a little bit. I know this is something that's near and dear to your heart and that the CRO council that you sit on at TSIA is spending some time on this concept of outcome selling, which again, it's been in play for several years now. Um, but com- a lot of companies are still just, you know, sort of really learning what that means. So, what does outcome selling, you know, mean to you specifically, SimCorp? If you had, to, you know, sort of define that,
1: I, I, I think on top of what I sort of already mentioned, we've done a number of things recently, and even to the extent where we've we've actually reorganized our whole go-to-market, including our field salespeople under customer segments or we call them verticals mm-hmm. right? and and one of the key reasons and design principles of that was we felt that we need to be even more sort of deeper into the customer outcomes and the only way to do that is if we specialize uh, everybody from the go-to-market from the marketing people all the way down to our field sellers into customer segments so now we have sales people that only focus on asset managers we have sales people that only focus on insurance mm-hmm. just to, to make sure that they can really go very, very deep into that particular vertical. And then, obviously, in, inside that vertical, they start thinking about all of the different outcomes that that particular segment uh, is important. I think, on top of what I said earlier, one, one other step to make sure that we really that we really do sell those outcomes, o- outside of tying our pricing to it, we actually, that's a key part of our commission plan. Um, so, so our salespeople will not get paid unless they've documented and they've agreed a customer success plan.
0: Well, that's one way to get, people's attention <laughs> on outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's
1: huge. Then, then quite quickly, your behavior changes, right? Yeah. Um, but it also means that at the deal time, we now have a customer success plan with a lot of sort of planned outcomes. It then means the implementation team take that and we measure again at the end of implementation. And then the customer success team take it on and that then becomes a, a regular measurement. Um, but but yeah, for us, we're, we we had to do that because we were serious about making sure that Especially if our pricing is tied to it, we really want to make sure that we succeed. Um, But also just that that alignment between the customer uh, and us, I think it it drives really, really good uh, discussions.
0: Well, you know, so so let's, you know, kind of play that evolution on outcomes out for for the audience, right? So, again, it starts out often companies are talking about outcomes on, on their, you know, in their marketing literature. They're not really sure how to deliver them. Then there's this next click over where, you know, you're looking at actual customer data, you're validating what outcomes you can deliver, and you have confidence you can deliver those. So you can start to, you know, really with confidence, present those to the customer. And then this next click over, you're actually having salespeople be accountable. So, hey, what you sold and committed to the customer, that's going to be partly how you get paid. So, by the time you get to that third click, you are way beyond the old world I described where we had a theoretical ROI, sales could pitch it, whether it happened or not, not a problem because I already have my commission check, I'm moving on to the next customer. And, and I think that, again, that is the right journey that you've gone through there. And I think you know, there's a lot of technology providers listening who know they're not far enough on that journey, but that that's the end game because it's tough to compete against that.
1: There's actually, there's a, there's a fourth click, right? yeah. which I actually I, I discovered through your CRO council and one of your other members who explained to me, so what we've done is we've said the salesperson gets paid as long as there is a success plan documented at the time of the deal. What, what this other one of your other members was saying is they actually half the commission check and they only pay 50% of the commission check when the outcome is realized.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, right? yeah, yeah. That,
1: that's, that's, that's really for us. That's a little bit too far right now, but. I think if, if you just think about the behavior that that drives, that all of a sudden it makes your salespeople focus on what can I sell that can be realized in the shortest possible time to meet my customer outcome, which is exactly the behavior that you kind of want.
0: Absolutely. In that type of compensation model, I will predict here that what that's also going to do is it's going to really join the salesperson and the customer success people at the hip right? Because that salesperson's, you know, because w- what do we know? We, we know that one of the biggest challenges between sales and customer success is sales will sell something and the transition is rocky. You know, not all the information gets over to customer success. They're not sure what the commitments were, all this kind of, you know, fun stuff. And, and it's not to People are bad people, but they're busy. They go on to the next thing. You know, that's what happens, right? But if you're a salesperson and you just stuck the landing on a deal and you know you're not getting part of the commission unless the customer realizes the outcome, you're going to be working with that CSM on that success plan going, okay, I just want to make sure. Did you, te- you know, how's things going? Which, I mean, again, I think that's the kind of behavior that we really we want to see out there, right?
1: Yeah, I think for me, I mean, we, we flirted with this idea a little bit, but in the end, we haven't implemented that in and the main reason is because that this is not very widely adopted in the industry. And ultimately, I think we, w- we would struggle to attract the right salespeople right now, given the, the compensation scheme is, it would be so different. Uh, yeah. But if the whole industry moves there, I think we'll be extremely happy.
0: Yeah. Well, again, as we talk about these clicks, the more clicks you, you implement, uh, again, I think you ultimately are creating incredible competitive advantage. Because again, who would not want to work with a company where sales and CSMs are joined at the hip? The customer feels that they're completely you know, compensated and motivated to make them you know, help the customer actually get the outcomes. I mean, that is what customers, you know, are looking for. And I have to go back, you know, in terms of outcomes and verticalization, um, I have to tell you this this story. So I wrote a paper a couple of years ago called Improving Your Vertical Leap. And the paper was was uh, released when I did this keynote at one of our conferences on this very topic, right? And and the argument was that, look, if everyone wants to, to really get to outcomes and you also want to keep margin in your solutions, you're going to have to verticalize and a majority of B2B tech companies uh, are go to market very horizontally, right? With what we call a thin vertical veneer. They're, they're like, yeah, oh yeah, I've got a healthcare set of solutions, but it's really the same set of, set of solutions for financial services, right? So I, I'll, I'll never forget this. I delivered this keynote and afterwards, this senior person from one of the largest software companies on the planet came, I won't say who, came up to me and say, Thomas, you know, that's super interesting. But we're never going to go there. We're never going to go there. We're, we are horizontal. That's how we've made our hay. Our partners will verticalize for us, right? We're very partner oriented. That's just not what we do. And I said, okay. I said, you know, we'll, we'll see, right? It'll be interesting. So it was two and a half years later, I get a call from this gentleman, and he says, you know, that keynote on you know vertical. Up? He goes, that's exactly what we're trying to do right now. <laughs> And it's because what you said, right? It's like if you really want to get into outcomes and what happened is this company, their largest customers, whether that was a head of a bank or a head of a management, was dragging the CEO into the room and saying, look, we want you to be a way more strategic partner with us, and, and you, which means you got to understand our business. You can't just sit here and say, well, here's you know, here's my software and I'll go, by the way, go talk to that partner over there. You, you got to have more skin in the game. So I, I do think that verticalization, not for everybody. But that's coming, you know. That train is stopping at more and more stations because it does allow you to unlock outcomes, and, and it, I think, and differentiate, and add more business value. And again, that's where the margins going to be. I mean, is, is is around business value. So I really appreciate you putting all that um, on the on the table. So I have one more question for you, and this is around specialists? Because I know that our, our CSO council just is right now doing a survey on this role of sales specialist. I know that a lot of the the people on that council, you know, people are very curious about how the industry is using specialists, how many specialists, you know, what's their roles, et cetera. So what are you hoping to learn about how the industry is deploying specialists? What itch are you trying to scratch here?
1: Yeah, I, I think look, we use sales specialists for a number of different offers I, I mentioned earlier. And I think we believe the setup works quite well. But I think I'm really eager to learn and to hear about how others have put this into practice and especially for what kind of duration, because our assumption is that over time, we'll build the competencies in the field sales team. And at one point, we won't have that specialist for that particular offer. Maybe we'll spin up a specialist for a a different segment. But um, yeah, I'm quite keen to see how others are thinking about the the duration of how long those teams are going to last.
0: So so that's one of the big questions is if you basically create a specialist because you have any, so let's say it's, you know, it's a new type of as a service offer you've never sold before, you create that specialist, do they go away? Do they always stay in play? Does that expertise get absorbed back into the general sales executive or sales force? That's one of the questions.
1: Exactly. So, so SaaS is a good example for us, right? So today we have a specialist team on SaaS and Obviously, with all the InfoSec things you get, you need quite a different skill set to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, for SimCorp, um, we've got an opportunity in front of us in the next few years to move all the customers onto SaaS. But what, let's say once that has been done, I, I, think, I see a, a smaller need to have a specialist team there. Um, and we think, obviously, the, the rest of the organization will also upskill over time. So then we can redeploy those and use them maybe on a, on a new offer or maybe it's a business service or, or something different.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, this is a great this is a great question, and I, I was talking to Steve Frost, who who you know leads the CRO council there, and he, and he said, you know, I think one of the challenges companies have is that you know once you implement a specialist, they have a tendency to never go away, <laughs> right? It's just like wait, they were a specialist that we thought we needed, and then now that's just part of the cost of sales, which again goes back to rack and everything else. So um, yeah, I think the interesting it'll be interesting to see how people are navigating that. Well, hey Oliver, hey, thanks so much for stopping in today. This has been a, a killer conversation and. And um, hey, a reminder to all of our listeners, if you can go ahead and give us a rating out there, it really sends a good signal to us that we should keep doing this and bringing people like Oliver in. And I always like to close these with a the question of the day. And so here it is. Is the complexity of your sales motion increasing or decreasing? If it's increasing, how are you solving that challenge? Cheers.